0: Father, I uh, I thank you so much for your word, and God, I thank you um, for the privilege that you've given us of being able to gather together and to to hear uh, your word this morning. I pray right now that you would help all of us to listen to your word. Um, God, I pray that you would give us soft hearts, uh, that you'd give us humble hearts, that we would be teachable, that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning. God, we can't even understand your word without your help. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. God, you know everything going on in our lives right now. You know if you know the anxieties we came in here with, the fears, the distractions, the, the stressors, the anger, all of it, God. No matter what's going on in our life, you know what we came in here with, God, and your word can minister to our souls. And so I pray that you would. And I pray that for those who are in here this morning who don't know you, who have not been born again, that today, God, you would open their eyes, that you would give them the gift of faith, that they would hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and be changed forever. Um, Lord, we love you. We thank you. and We pray that in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Am I good? This is good enough. Okay, cool. Felt like a little bit kind of echoey at first. So Um, all right. So have you guys ever thought about what it would be like to drive around today without road signs? Like if there was no road signs and and you just started trying to drive around, especially in like Metro DC, that'd be kind of crazy, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty difficult. While we don't often give them more than a passing conscious thought, without road signs, it would be incredibly difficult for us to navigate and to get around. Uh, and there's, it's interesting. I was reading about this this week. There's actually quite a bit of psychology that goes into the signs. Uh, the shapes and the colors of road signs are all very intentional, and the symbols uh, that are on the signs. So the you know colors actually cause emotional reactions inside of us. There are you know numerous psychological studies that have been done that show that, like for example, our brains interpret the color red as a threat and kind of put us on alert. And so uh, it, that's why, for example, a stop sign is going to be red. There's a reason that you're not going to come across a, a, a blue stop sign or a green stop sign because it would probably confuse you a little bit and cause your take, make your brain take a little bit longer uh, to react. Um, and that, the same with the shapes, right? Each shape uh, corresponds to a certain action. That's the reason you don't see square stop signs. We just know we're conditioned. When we see an octagon, that means stop, right? It's a stop sign. Um, It was cool. There's one study showed that signs containing symbols like uh, stick figures and the human stick figures uh, are really effective because we're able to quickly interpret them. And the study found that a sign like a stick figure child walking across the street in a school zone gets a driver's attention a full second earlier than a sign with just the text only. So they're really intentional, these signs, and, and they actually you know, play into our psychology even far more than we realize. Signs and symbols, they're indicators that help point us in the right direction, right? Now, the book of John lays out seven signs that are meant to point us in the right direction regarding who Jesus is and what he came to do. And of the seven signs in John, the first sign that Jesus performs is the one that's the most often overlooked. It's often seen as the least impressive or the least impactful because on the surface, Jesus turning water into wine doesn't seem to really like impact anyone's life. It can almost seem random to the casual reader. Nobody's getting healed. Nobody's getting raised from the dead. kind of flies under the radar like, what's going on here? You know, on the surface, it really does seem random. I mean, is this just Jesus flexing on everyone at a party, being like, "Hey guys, look what I can do!" You know, like, "Look at my superpowers." <laughs> but the reason this story is often overlooked is because it's misunderstood. And the purpose of a sign, especially the seven signs in the Book of John, is not to impress. It's not to to show off. The purpose of a sign is to point. It's intentional. It's purposeful. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, who's a a, a scholar and a a professor, comments, he says the signs in the book of John are not mere displays of power, but are symbol-laden events, rich in meaning for those with eyes to see. So the signs that Jesus performed are indicators pointing to his identity and the reason he came. This was a very intentional action by Jesus. And in fact, verse 11 in our text that we just read tells us this. In verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That word manifested just means revealed, right? So Jesus was revealing who he is and what he came to do in the performing of this sign. It was a partial revelation of his glory it was a foretaste of who he is and what he had come to do the full revelation of his glory is going to come at the cross because that's what he came to do but this was pointing ahead to that that's the role of signs and the 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 reason for the signs the result of the signs is also given in verse 11 it says that the result was that his disciples believed in him that should ring a bell for those of us who have been Uh, tracking through this series so far. You remember the, the purpose statement in the book of John in chapter 20, verse 31? It says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. So we need to constantly remember as we're working through the book of John, we need to read it in light of that purpose statement. All of what Jesus did is to demonstrate that He is the Christ the son of god so that you and i can have, believe and have life in his name now the question is, is what exactly does this sign mean what's the meaning behind the turning of water into wine and how in the world does jesus turning water into wine at a jewish wedding in the first century have anything to do with our lives today that's what we're going to spend our time discussing this morning so i want to spend the rest of our time showing you two massively important realities that this sign points to. And they both happen to be incredibly relevant for our lives today. So the first reality that this sign points to is that Jesus is the anointed one who purifies his people from sin. Jesus is the anointed one who purifies his people from sin. So there are multiple indicators in this passage that point us in that direction. Uh, First, look at the exchange between Jesus and his mother here. So when Mary, Jesus' mother, told Jesus that the wedding uh, party had run out of wine, um, she implied that he should do something about it, and Jesus kind of responded in a surprising way. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? So was Jesus in a bad mood? Is he a teetotaler? Is he like, you know, don't talk to me about alcohol. Like, is that is, what's going on here? No, he's not, a, well, he's not a teetotaler, and he's not in a bad mood. So to our ears, Jesus' response might sound rude. Like today, you don't say woman to your mother uh, in the West, especially in the South, in the United States. You do not say that. If I said that to my mom in front of my dad, it would have been bad news. So, but in, in this time, this actually wasn't a rude or a crass term, all right? This was, it would have been somewhat akin to saying ma'am today. So, it was kind of, it was a little bit of a distant way to direct your mother. So, it wasn't warm. It was kind of, it was polite distance would be the best way to describe it. But it wasn't disrespectful in any way. Uh, what And what Jesus literally is saying here is he's saying, what do you have to do with me? Or, or what do we have in common? That's what he's essentially saying when he says, what does this have to do with me? Jesus is giving his mother an abrupt but gentle rebuke, basically saying it's not your place to get involved in this. That's what he's saying. So it's pretty evident from Jesus's rebuke that his mother Mary wasn't just innocently asking him to help out with the wine problem. That's not all that's going on here. Now, remember the angels and the shepherds had told Mary when Jesus was born that he was going to be the Messiah, right? Mary knew this. Uh, Luke chapter 2 says that Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. So she knew that Jesus had been sent from God, And like the disciples and the rest of the Jews at the time, Mary also had misconceptions about the role of the Messiah, about what it would look like for the Messiah to come. And so she probably expected Jesus to perform spectacular public miracles like Moses, to to rally the people and to lead Israel to military victory. And she likely had been waiting for that moment to come. And I think that she very well could have viewed this as Jesus's potential coming out party. And I say that because of the way that Jesus responded. Jesus responded. He said said something curious. He said, my hour has not yet come. Which tells me that in Mary's request was a suggestion that his hour could be now. Now, of course, Mary didn't understand what she was asking. She didn't know that Jesus' hour would mean his crucifixion. So Jesus gently and firmly told her it was not her place to suggest when or how he should reveal himself as the Messiah. She was overstepping her bounds to suggest this. And so what's really happening here is, Jesus is marking the start of his public ministry, and he is indicating to Mary, his mother, that our, our, I, I am no—I am not no—I am no longer primarily relating to you in a mother-son relationship, but in a a Messiah and my people relationship. In other words, so Matthew Henry uh, commentated. He put it like this. He said, "As man, Jesus was David's son and hers." Yet as God, he was David's Lord and hers, and he would have her know it. Okay, so this is what Jesus is doing, is he's saying, I'm the Messiah, I am, and I'm here to do the will of my Father, and I'll decide when it's my time to reveal myself as the Messiah. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Okay. So another pointer that this sign points to Jesus as the one who purifies his people from sin is that Jesus refers to my hour. Every time that phrase, my hour, is used in John, it refers to Jesus' crucifixion. So, for example, in John 12, 27, uh, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus said this on uh, the, the eve of his crucifixion. So the purpose for which Jesus came to die on the cross, the, the, the purpose for which Jesus came was to die on the cross for the sins of his people. And it wasn't time yet. That's what he means when he says, my hour has not yet come. And Mary, just like everyone else, failed to understand that. And so Jesus corrected her, alluding to his coming crucifixion in a kind of a cryptic way. And then what's funny is that he proceeded to do what she asked him to do anyways, right? He told the servants to fill six jars with water, and he turned the water into wine. So what was Jesus doing? Well, he was saying, "My hour is not here yet, but I will perform a sign that will point towards my hour, which the purpose for which I've come." That's what Jesus is doing by obliging his mother's request here to turn the water into wine. It's, it's also significant that Jesus had the servants fill jars with water that were used for the rites of purification. These weren't just any random jars. These were jars that held the water for the rites of purification. So this water was used for the ceremonial washing of hands and utensils. It was a ritual to demonstrate spiritual cleansing. The problem was that the Jewish people were going through the motions outwardly But inwardly, they were far from God. In Mark chapter 7, uh, the Pharisees rebuked Jesus because his disciples didn't follow the tradition of washing their hands before they ate. So let me read you this exchange in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 to 7. So the Pharisees come up to him. And they say this, they say, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. All right, so mood just changed in the room a little bit, right? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. So the people of Israel were observing traditions and rules, but ignoring the love of God and the love of neighbor, which was the very purpose of the law of God in the first place. And so the, the empty jars that needed to be filled with water were really a picture of of the spiritual emptiness of the Jewish people. And the lack of wine at the wedding was a picture of the, the spiritual emptiness of the Jewish people at the time. And it was also a picture of the inability of such outward rituals to actually be able to cleanse us from sin. And By filling the jars to the brim, Jesus was indicating that the old form of spiritual cleansing was giving away to something much better. The message behind the miracle is that Jesus himself will provide the wine that his people must drink if they are to be purified from sin. And that wine is symbolic for his blood, which will be shed on the cross. Jesus, by his substitutionary death on the cross, provides a way for sinners to be completely cleansed from sin. That's why whenever we take the Lord's Supper, Like at the the last supper, Jesus, he passes the cup of wine, and what does he say? He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, I believe that. I believe that I am cleansed from my sin and loved by God because Jesus died in my place. That's what we're saying when we take the Lord's Supper. That's the, the significance of the Lord's Supper. I love how William Cooper's hymn, Uh, There is a Fountain, describes it. Cooper writes that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Friends, this is why Jesus came. It is his hour. He came to die because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. The book of Isaiah says each of us has turned to his own way. Every person on this planet without exception has rebelled against and offended a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. The due punishment for our sin is the unrelenting wrath of God. That is righteous. That is what we are owed. But God loves sinners so much That he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to endure that judgment in our place. Jesus bled and died on the cross to take the judgment that you deserve. That's what this turning of the water and the wine is pointing to. That's why Jesus is saying, you can't make yourself clean. There's no amount of religious exercise or religious rituals you can do. You can wash yourself with water as much as you want, but you can't cleanse yourself on the inside. All you're doing is whitewashing a tomb. It's still full of dead dead men's bones inside. You need someone who can pay your sin debt for you. We need someone who can pay it in our place. That's why Jesus came. And if you will repent of your sin, which means to turn away from your sin, and trust that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. So my question for you, first of all, is have you trusted in him? I invite you to place your trust in him today. Don't trust in yourself. You cannot cleanse yourself of guilt and sin by any way except the blood of Jesus. And depending on who you are this morning, that truth could serve as either a caution or a comfort. If you are trusting in your own righteousness for salvation, I hope this serves as a caution for you. Let me ask you, is, is your worship of God genuine or is it rote? Is it a going through the motions or is it just religious Kind of exercise and checking the boxes. Because you know, you can be in a Christian church and still trust in yourself for salvation. Many people think that what God wants of them is to to sprinkle some church activity into their lives to kind of balance out the mistakes. But that's trusting in your own righteousness. It won't work. And Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7, he said, many people will say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, Christianity is about a relationship with God. Do you know him? Do you know and understand that he is far holier than we could ever be that we are far more sinful than we could ever understand and we need grace to be saved And you don't have to bear the burden of trying to to measure up to god that's exhausting anyways i'm not sure why you would want to do that when you can receive the free gift of god's righteousness that christ died on the cross for you he's already paid your debt he lived the perfect life that you couldn't live it's a free gift to be received by grace so many people are trusting in their own works for salvation. We were just, we've been doing something called Gospel and Grub every other Friday where we go to Old Town Alexandria and we go and we share the gospel with people and then we go out and we, we eat afterwards. It's been awesome. If you haven't gotten to come, you definitely need to come because we've been having some amazing conversations with people. People are open to the gospel. But one of the things, those of you who've been going out and sharing the gospel with us, you know, we talk to people all the time. And we, you know, we ask them, you know, why they think they're going to go to heaven or things like that. They say, well, I'm a pretty good person, right? So many people are trusting in their good works. Here's the deal. If you think that you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person, because of good works, I'm going to share an analogy that a guy named Ray Comfort uses a lot that I think is really helpful. If that's you, then right now you're a lot like a man who's about to jump out of an airplane without a parachute, and you're hoping that you're going to be able to survive by flapping your arms really fast. Right? That's what trying to be saved by your own works is like. Instead, what I'm asking you to do and what, what Scripture encourages you to do is put on the parachute. And the parachute is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that can save you. When you put your trust in Him, it means you actually put the parachute on and you deploy it. Right? When you're When you're saying, well, I'm a pretty good person, well, you're leaving the parachute on the plane and you're jumping out. And that's not going to end well for you. So my encouragement to you is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, this is also a great comfort. Many of you need to be comforted and to be reminded that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from sin, which means that you don't have to be anxious about your standing before God. I want to point out to you uh just the quality and the quantity of the wine that Jesus provides here in John chapter 2 do you notice that that's that's significant that's not meaningless that six the six stone water jars held 20 to 30 gallons each y'all that's a lot of wine that's like 120 to 180 gallons of wine they're not going to drink all of that wine one commentator said not only did Jesus keep the party going but he also gave them a great wedding present afterwards they had a ton of wine left over right the point is that they had, and not only did they have a lot of wine, but the 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 master of the feast said, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Like, you guys saved the best wine for last. Like, it was incredible wine, and it was more than they could possibly drink. So the quality and the quantity of the wine in John 2 is meant to show that Jesus' blood is more than sufficient to cleanse you from sin. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you stumble and you fall, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, every time you sin, you can plead the blood of Jesus Christ. And He covers you from sin. You are no longer under condemnation. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 1 says that, and that's because of this good news right here. As the, uh, I like how the, the hymn goes. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. So, reality one Jesus is the anointed one who purifies his people from sin. But that's not all that this sign points to. There's actually even more, and it actually gets even better. The second reality that this sign points to is that Jesus is the Messiah who brings about God's promise of restoration. Jesus is the Messiah who brings about God's promise of restoration. So Jesus was well aware that the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of the Messianic age as a time when wine would flow abundantly. So wine symbolized Uh, joy in the scriptures. It symbolized uh, God's blessing and God's abundance. Now listen, let me read you Isaiah 25, verses six to eight. This is a description of the kingdom of God, uh, about um, like what our hope is in, what we are waiting on when God is gonna restore all things. So the Lord says in verse six of Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food You love that verse? That's good news right there. This is a description of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the kingdom of God. So by miraculously providing the abundance of incredible wine here in John chapter 2, Jesus was giving a sign that he was the Messiah who is ushering in this kingdom of God that Isaiah 25 points towards. He's, He's essentially saying that it's here. It's arriving. You see, sin has corrupted the earth from the inside out. Like the, the, the story, all of the storyline of Scripture is leading to Jesus. Jesus is the apex of Scripture, right? In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens in the earth he creates us to know him but we turn from him we've sinned we have rebelled against god we have dishonored god by worshipping and serving the things that god has created instead of god and that sin brought death it brought in destruction into the world things are broken and and we know that it's evident when we look around us that things are broken but god promised in genesis 3 verse 15 that there would be a Savior, one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would come and who would restore what sin has destroyed. And that's what we're longing for. That's what we're waiting for. Jesus is that Savior, and He is the one who's ushering in this kingdom of God. And when He comes, when Jesus returns, He's going to make all things new. He's going to bring about this new kingdom, this new heavens, and this new earth that we are longing for and waiting for. And so, by his provision of wine at this wedding, Jesus is signaling that he's the long-awaited one. That's what he has come to do. And that all of this, the fact that all of this happens at a wedding sheds even more light on it. The scripture depicts the bringing together of the church and Jesus upon his return as a wedding feast. We are as the church, we are betrothed to Christ. We're engaged to him. He has paid the dowry. In other words, we don't do that in Western culture anymore, but uh, in the first century, uh, the way that weddings would work is that uh, the, the groom or the groom's family would pay a dowry to the bride's family. And at that point, there would be an engagement period of about a year and then kind of phase two of the wedding is when it was time for the wedding to begin, the groom and his groomsmen would go in procession to the bride's house and the bri- and they would get the bride and the bridesmaids, and they would all go in procession back to the groom's house and they would have like a week-long party. And that's what Jesus is at right now. He's at this week-long party in John chapter two. That's a picture of what's, go- of what's happening right now as the church, we're engaged. Okay, the dowry has been paid and you know what the cost was? It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ that purchased us out of sin. And the bridegroom is coming for his bride. He, Jesus is returning for the church. He will come for us. And when we, uh, when, when he comes and he brings us into the presence of God, into the kingdom of God, the book of Revelation depicts that as a wedding feast. Let me read you Revelation 21 verses two to four. It gives a great description of it. This is what that day will be like. It says, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That sounds familiar like Isaiah 25, like we just read earlier, right? You guys see how all of Scripture is pointing towards us? Do you guys, church, do you see our future? Like, do you see, this is our future. This is what we're heading towards. That is really good news. God is making all things new and will be in his presence forever. All of our groaning will be ended. Every hardship will cease. Every fear will be quieted. Every longing will be satisfied. Now, there are so many ways that we can apply this text to our lives. Let me just give you two as we get ready to close up. First of all, be encouraged in suffering. One of my prayers is that today's passage and today's message will help believers who are suffering or downcast to look with hope and joy towards your glorious future that awaits you. One of my favorite uh, passages of scripture is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. The apostle Paul writes, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, and your treasure is in heaven, it means that it's indestructible. Our bodies may decay. Our bank accounts may run dry. Our freedom may be stolen. Our reputation may be smeared. But nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The return of Jesus is certain. The resurrection of the saints is certain. The, res- the restoration of creation is certain. The reign of God's people with Christ is certain. So brothers and sisters, no matter what you are enduring, your future is certain. You will be raised from the dead and reign with Christ in the new creation forever. And this is what the abundant provision of wine at the wedding is meant to point towards. This is why Paul can can give us an audacious command like, rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. I mean, if you're living for what you cannot lose, then your joy is indestructible. And friends, that will stand out as a light in a dark world. The second point of application I want to give you is to be a light in your marriage. So it's significant that Jesus performs his first sign at a wedding. His, his very presence at a wedding validates the importance of it. All throughout scripture, marriage and the wedding ceremony is a picture of God's relationship with the church. So Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Okay? So this tells us a couple of things. One, marriage and the wedding ceremony are important to God. It's his institution. It's not man-made. This is something ordained by God. Secondly, it tells us that marriage is not primarily about us. Marriage is not an end in itself. It's not meant to serve our own selfish purposes. It's meant to be a reflection of the glory of God. So if you want a healthy marriage, one of the best things you can do is realize that the priority in your marriage is to give people a good picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So how does Christ love the church? He gave himself for her. He laid down his life. How does the church love Christ? We willingly and happily love and submit to him. There's selflessness on both sides of the equation, right? Whenever, whenever you make marriage about the fulfillment of your own needs, two things happen. First, it distorts the beautiful picture that marriage is meant to portray. You're actually bearing false witness to the world of who Christ is when you are selfish in your marriage. And secondly, you're actually working against your own joy because joy is not found in clamoring for your own needs. It's found in laying them down for the good of your spouse. And that's true in all relationships, guys, but it's especially true in the marriage relationship. I believe that almost all issues in marriage can be boiled down to selfishness. I really do. So what do you do if your marriage is messy? What do you do if you got a messy marriage? What do you do right now if things are contentious? Let me... Let's give you a couple things. First, start by remembering how much grace Christ has extended to you. He loved you and gave himself for you while you were still a sinner. Okay? Secondly, honestly evaluate what part of the conflict can be attributed to your selfish desires. Identify those desires and then lay them down. Third, honestly listen to your spouse and seek to understand his or her desires and needs, and then do everything that you can to meet them, no matter the personal cost. And so this is not to say that your own desires and your own needs don't matter, but when you've got two parties in a relationship who both commit to live for the good of the other person, then guess what? Your needs will get met, Right? Because if you're putting your spouse's needs before your own and they're putting yours before your own and you say, well, but Jared, what if I'm doing that and my spouse isn't? What if I'm focused on my spouse's needs but they're not reciprocating? I promise you, if you love someone like that and you continue to selflessly put their needs before yourself, it's not gonna be long before they follow, right? It's not gonna be long before that grace rubs off on them as well. Um, People respond to radical love like that. And then uh, lastly, I would just say seek help. Don't struggle alone. We get married before a crowd of witnesses for a reason. We're asking people to hold us accountable to the vows that we make. So if you're struggling with those marriage vows, come and talk to us. We want to help you with your marriage. As your marriages are meant to point to the most amazing reality in the universe. It's the eternal covenant between Jesus and his bride, the church. So let's be a church filled with marriages like that, amen? And singles, as you consider who you will marry, do not marry someone if you are not sure that they have the exact same commitment. If they are not committed to their marriage being a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, don't marry them. Do not be unequally yoked. So as you prayerfully consider whether God would have you marry, and as you seek a spouse, make it your top priority to have a marriage that makes Jesus look glorious. Amen? So the sign of turning water into wine points to two glorious realities. Jesus purifies his people from sin. Jesus is the Messiah who brings about God's promise of restoration. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Uh, and we're going to respond to the, to the message this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together uh, because uh, it connects actually with both of those realities that we just talked about. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we are declaring that by faith, we believe that the blood of Jesus purifies us from sin. So, when we take the declaration, it's it or when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a declaration that we believe that. It's also a way for us to remember that as believers. So, it's a way for us to remember. So, it, I, one of the things, Christian, if you came in discouraged this morning, if you came in feeling distant from God this morning, my prayer and hope is that as you take the supper this morning, that you would remember that Jesus shed his blood for you, that there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, okay? So, that like, Let your heart meditate on that and focus on that as we take the supper together this morning. But we're not just looking back when we take the Lord's Supper. We're actually looking ahead to our restoration. Because we're looking forward to the day. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are are taking it by faith. By faith, we believe that the presence of Christ is with us here as we take the supper. But we're also looking ahead to the day when we will be with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will not feast by faith, but we will feast by sight. We will be with Him. We will be in His presence. And we are looking ahead to that day as we take the Lord's Supper. So, you see, the Lord's Supper is also a sign. It points to a greater reality than the bread and the juice. The point is not a ritual. The point is not tradition. It's a sign that's a reminder to believers that our sin has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And it's a sign to non-believers that Jesus is the Savior that they need, the one who died on the cross for their sins. It's a signpost pointing to the incredible love of God. So the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal for baptized Christians. So if you are not a Christian, then, then I would ask you, first of all, please don't take Lord's Supper with us because it is reserved for Christians. But what my prayer for you is this morning is that, that this will be a sign pointing you to the love of Christ today and that as we take the Lord's Supper that you will take this opportunity this morning to pray and to give your life to Christ that you will take this opportunity to, to in your seat, to place your faith and trust in Jesus because we want you to take the Lord's Supper with us the next time we take it. We would love for you to join us in this meal and to join us in this fellowship. If you are a Christian and you're not living in unrepentant sin, then this is a time to worship and to reflect, to remember and to rejoice over the blood of Jesus shed for you. So I want just to, to right now pause and give us a moment to pray and to reflect. Take some time to look back to the cross and to look ahead to the glorious future that awaits us. And I'm going to ask Carrie to play. I'll give you a few minutes to, uh, to pray and to meditate. And then in a moment, I'm going to ask you guys to come up and you'll take the elements uh, from over here and bring them back to your seat and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's spend some time in meditation and reflection and prayer.